Welcome to this special best of episode of the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. One thing I know is that my listeners are very busy, so you may not have had time to catch each and every one of our conversations on this podcast. But a few times a year, I put together a few compilations of the episodes that I hope you don't miss, or even a few that you might want to listen to again, depending on where you're at today. These conversations cover a diverse range of topics, so you don't know what might speak to you now differently than when it was first published. So we'll take a look at some of the most meaningful conversations this year so far in 2023, and you'll find links to the full conversations in the show notes. First up is a conversation I had in January, and it poses a very important and fundamental question as you think about where to go from here. And that's how are you going to choose to live your life from here? The author is Cynthia Covey Haller, and she co authored the book with her father, Stephen R. Covey, his last book. And it took her 10 years to put it together, but it really captures his ideas about later life. And I think it's very important. The book is Live Life in Crescendo. Your most important work is always ahead of you. So you write in the book about your father's personal mission. What's your mission with the book Live Life in Crescendo? Your most important work is always ahead of you. Well, my mission is what his mission was for this book, to bring hope to people um, at any age and stage of life that they can, despite past failures and successes, even successes, that you still got important things to accomplish and great contributions to make in your life. And so we're hoping to give hope and inspiration to people that you still have great things ahead of you. And despite what setbacks and challenges you've gone through, keep at it and recreate yourself, do what you need to do to become the person you want to be and, and things will keep getting better. Any of us that have children can relate to challenging questions from our children. And it sounds like this book may have had its beginning in a question you asked your father. Well, I think I insulted him when I asked him. I didn't mean to, but I, I foolishly said one day, hey, Dad, are you going to ever write anything as good as The Seven Habits? <laughs> He's like, gosh, what an insult. What do I, I wrote that in 89. I mean, why do I get up every day? Why am I speaking and writing and, and going about my work if all my best stuff is, has been out there? I mean, what, do you want me to just sit? Go to the beach and read a book and watch TV all day. I don't know what to do if I can't keep contributing and producing. And so he he told me that he was working on several projects at the same time, several books. And he said, I've got this, the one I'm most concerned and love the most is Live Life for Crescendo, which Joe was actually his personal mission statement in the last 10 years of his life. And I think he adopted that because people were asking him when he was my age, and your age, I guess, were about the same. He was, they were saying, oh, well, you know, how much longer are you going to do this? You're going to retire soon? And, and in our home, the retire, the R word was kind of a bad word to say. He felt like I still have passion. I still have enthusiasm for what I'm doing. I feel like I have good content material and can make a difference. So why would I stop? And at that point, he asked me if I would be willing to uh, do a lot of the legwork on this book to take his ideas and to interview him, and then to find practical stories and examples of people who live in crescendo versus living in diminuendo, so that others who listen or read could see themselves in this situation and think, you know, I can do that. I can do something. 
And you mentioned the stories. You have a lot of great stories in the book. One, I think, really captures who he was. It's about your father on a trip with you to San Francisco when you were 12. Would you be willing to share that story with us? You bet. It's one of, as I look back on my childhood, it seems representative of him and his character. And I've learned so much from it, just thinking back on it. But I'm the oldest of nine children. And my father and mother were great at helping each of us feel loved and appreciated for ourselves in a big mob of kids. I think that was pretty good. And one of the ways my father did it was to do what he called private dates, private trips, where we would, we, he would take the kids one by one to different places with him when he went to speak. And so I was the first one since I'm the oldest. And I was 12 years old. And for weeks, maybe months, we anticipated our trip to San Francisco. I'm from Salt Lake City. And I'd never been to San Francisco. And he told me about the magical trolley cars and how wonderful it would be to run up, go up and down the hills on those. And I just couldn't imagine what they'd be like. And, and then we had planned to go shop in the famous department stores and get an outfit for school. And then we would go and get our favorite food, Chinese food in Chinatown, authentic Chinese food, and, and take a taxi back to the hotel and then go swimming before they closed the pool. And then we'd order room service, which seemed amazing to a little kid too, to get a hot fudge sundae and watch a movie late at night. And so we had this whole thing planned after his presentation. And so it was going according to plan. I was at the back of the room waiting for him to finish. And he finished up and was making his way toward me when he ran into one of his old friends that he hadn't seen for years from college. And he was so thrilled to see him and they embraced. And I heard the friend say, oh, I came because I knew you were speaking today. I'd love to take you down on the wharf and we could have seafood with my wife and catch up. And I thought, oh, great. I, I could see my trolley car running, rolling down the hill without me. And I was devastated. And, and he seemed so excited to be with him, though. And he said, that sounds great. I've got my daughter here. And he looked at me and said, oh, yeah, you can come too. And I thought, oh, it's the last thing I want to do is spend my time with old people I don't know <laughs> and eating seafood, which I hated. And so anyway, I expected the worst. But then I heard him say, you know, Bill, I'd love to come with you. That would be great. But not tonight. Cynthia and I have a special date planned, don't we, honey? And he winked at me and grabbed my hand and we were out the door before Bill knew what happened. <laughs> and I was kind of choked up about it. And I said, but dad, that's your good friend. I know you'd probably love to see him and do something with him. And he said, I really would, but I wouldn't miss tonight for anything. And you'd much rather have Chinese food anyway, wouldn't you? Let's go catch that trolley car. And so to me, that, that story was representative of so many principles of keeping your word and putting first things first and caring about relationships and making deposits of trust. And kind of, as I look back, kind of set a foundation for my relationship with him and lessons that I learned throughout my life that I refer to. So it was a great experience. One of the funny things about retirement is you picture it as having all the time in the world all the freedom to finally do the things that you always wanted to do. But the reality is for many people, all of a sudden there's a lot of things coming your way. Request to do this, join that, etc. And pretty soon you'll be like one of the people that I'm sure you've heard say, I'm so busy, I'm busier now than ever. I don't know how I ever had the time to work. So you really have to be selective and you really have to prioritize. And Stephen Covey captured this in a quote, you have to decide what your highest priorities are. 
and have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. So the skill of saying no is an important one to cultivate, and it's challenging for many people. Natalie Liu in the UK is the author of the new book, The Joy of Saying No, a simple plan to stop people-pleasing, reclaim boundaries, and say yes to the life you want. And she provided her advice on how to do just that. Well, if they have been quite the people-pleaser, or what might be what I would call like a frequent or chronic people-pleaser, they discovered that there are certain people in their life who have been quite reliant on them saying yes all the time. Something I point out in the book is that if you say no, if you express your limits, if you make more clear who you are, and somebody kicks off about that, that is because they are overdue on receiving a no from you. And so what people discover when they start saying no is that they possibly have a people-pleasing entourage. Certain people in their life who benefit from them not saying no. You know, like celebrities, and you know, they've got sometimes that group of hanger-oners, and even though they're blowing all their money on drugs or whatever it is, none of these hanger-oners point that out because they don't want to stop the gravy train. So a lot of people pleasers discover, oh, there are certain people who are really reliant on me just going along with things. And that can feel very uncomfortable initially. What they also discover, though, is that a lot of the things that they were nervous about saying no to aren't really that big of a deal. And that's not to say that there aren't certain areas where it can feel tricky. I had that with family, I think, in particular, and actually even with work to a certain extent, where even though it, it might not necessarily be a person, trying to discern what it was that I needed to say no to could sometimes feel tricky because it's like, but what if I'm sabotaging an opportunity? But I think a lot of people are surprised that, oh, I don't have to tell a big ass story. I don't have to tell them my life story. I don't have to say sorry. I don't have to justify the fact that I'm saying no. What I do need to do is say no in the first place. Many people are kind to others, but hard on themselves. Kristen Neff, who's actually beginning semi-retirement, shared her research at the University of Texas at Austin on the benefits of self-compassion and how it pays to be kind to yourself. This is hard. Give yourself kindness. And then what's really important, and actually what differentiates compassion or self-compassion from pity, is a sense of connectedness to others. So it's not saying, you know, poor me, woes me. I'm the only person who's made a mistake, or I'm the only person that's, that's struggling. It's really saying, hey, all human beings struggle. All human beings are imperfect. Actually, that's the way God made us. And it's nothing, unfortunately, what happens, especially when we make a mistake, but even a health challenge occurs or something difficult happens, we think it's not supposed to be this way, as if the way things are supposed to be is perfect. And if they aren't perfect, something has gone wrong and something's wrong with me. And it's not really logical, but that sense of isolation really makes things a lot harder than they need to be. And so when we just remind ourselves quite simply, like, well, of course, this is a human experience. It's not just me. Then that's what makes it compassion as opposed to pity. 
So what do you think are the main benefits of self-compassion? Well, the research is very, very clear. So there are both mental and physical health benefits of self-compassion. So if you think of the word in Latin, compassion, passion means suffering. It's how are we with our suffering? And if we aren't with it in a healthy way, in other words, if we dive into it or we become overwhelmed by it, we may develop depression or anxiety or you know sleep disorders, eating disorders. And it also may start affecting our health. We might have a lot of cortisol, um, high blood pressure, you know, there's knock-on effects. So what happens with self-compassion is when we're struggling, we're hurting in some way. If we're there for ourselves, like we would be for a supportive friend, that means we're, we're stronger and we're more able to deal with the tough stuff without being knocked over by it. And so it's linked to better mental health, not only fewer negative things like depression, anxiety, stress but also positive mind states like happiness and optimism. And that's because if you think about it, kindness, connectedness, these are positive emotions. So we're kind of framing our difficulty. We aren't pretending it's not there, but we're just being kind and supportive to ourselves in the midst of the difficulty. And these are positive emotions that help us cope. And then that's in turn linked to physical health. So for instance, we're more self-compassionate, our cortisol levels are lower, You've got greater heart rate variability, for instance. And that means we also sleep better because we aren't just beating ourselves up all night so that we can't sleep. And so it's linked to both physical and mental well-being. A lot of people, when they think about their later years, are planning to age in place. Lisa Sini thinks you should think beyond that. She's an award-winning, internationally recognized interior designer for senior living. And she believes you need to really think about how not only can you age in place, but rather how you can thrive in place. Yet our homes in general don't adjust to us, especially as we age. So when we're talking about aging in place, we're talking about thriving as we choose where we want to live. And that could be you're living part of the year in a different uh, area. It could be you're traveling around the country. It could be that you're in senior living or you're staying in your home that you bought when you're in your 20s and you've been there your whole life. So. The point is, how do we get that environment to adjust to us, to allow us to feel safe and free and have confidence as we age? And I know, at least for me, I'm short. I can't just jump on a countertop any longer and try and get the wine glasses down. I like It's a little tenuous on that. Like I might fall at any second. My mom has shoulder issues, rotator cuff issues. So getting things from the top down or the bottom up, back issues, knee issues, arthritis. So if you can have your home adjust to you so that you can still do the things that you love to do, that make you autonomous, that give you independence and dignity and freedom, I think that's a win. And those small investments in comparison to what you're going to get out of it in years, in quality of life, in feeling good about yourself and being able to stay connected are like nothing I don't need to tell you that life is full of changes and full of transitions. Retirement's a particularly important one, a major one, and it's best to be prepared, best to know what to expect. Journalist Joanne Lipman has written a new book titled Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work. And she found in interviewing people who have made successful transitions and experts who have studied them, that there's a distinct sequence of four phases that unfold. And they're important to know as you begin to plan for your transition? Sure. So I call it the reinvention roadmap. And the four steps are search, struggle, stop, 
solution. And I'll go through those real quick and then we can kind of dig in if you would like. But the, the search, the first step, what's interesting about this, this is when you are collecting information, you're collecting experiences, you are accumulating knowledge. But the really cool thing about this step is you're sucking in all this information that will ultimately lead to a transition, except very often you're not aware of it. It's unintentional, which is so interesting. It's going to lead you somewhere unexpected. The second stage, this is the struggle. The struggle is when you start to disconnect from your previous identity, but you have not quite figured out the new identity where you are going to. We don't like to talk about this stage because it's really uncomfortable. It's kind of miserable, honestly. And when we go through it, we tend to think we're all alone and that we are the only people in the world going through this. Everybody else is on this glide path to success and only we are struggling. But the key here, and we will talk more about this, but the key here is to know that when you're in the midst of this struggle, you're not alone because everybody goes through it and you feel like you're standing still or you're stuck, but you're actually not. You're actually moving forward. But this stage can last for quite a while for some people. And often it doesn't end until you reach the third stage, which is the stop. So the stop is something that pulls you out of your routine. It could be something that you choose, like I quit my job or I retire, but it could also be something imposed on you, like I've lost my job or there's an illness or a divorce, or for that matter, a pandemic. It, it's something that pulls you away from your routine but what that does is it allows you to actually get perspective on all of these experiences and the struggle and all of the pieces that you've been sort of, that have been swimming around in your brain have a chance to coalesce. And that in turn leads you to that understanding of where you're going to go. And that leads you to that fourth and final step, which is the solution. It is where you are pivoting to. If you're a regular listener to this podcast, you probably know that in the retirement coaching that I do, I use a particular approach I'm trained in, created by Bill Burnett and Dave Evans at Stanford called Designing Your Life, and took the opportunity to talk with a renowned designer, Aisha Bursal, on her perspective on what it takes to design your life with longevity in mind, and to discuss her new book, Design the Long Life You'll Love, a step-by-step -step guide to love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. What's the difference in your view between a ready-made purpose that they may be moving away from and a self-made purpose that they may come to discover? Thank you. I love that question. Thank you for bringing that up because our purpose gives our life meaning. And when we did the research on aging and I wrote my book, Design the Long Life You Love, one of the things that I did was map out long life. And I mapped out purpose across, like from zero to 90 plus. And what I realized is the first half of our life, we have a lot of structures, what I call ready-made purpose. And it could be school, it could be work, it could be family, it could be hobbies. These social structures that give us a sense of, our sense of meaning. But somewhere in midlife, and we call this midlife crisis. Those things, you've, we've accomplished a lot of those ready-made purposes. And we start asking ourselves, myself included, what's the meaning of my life now? And it's at a time when 
if we have kids, maybe our kids are leaving the house. Maybe we're retiring from one job or we're looking for a change. Or And that's when we realize we need some self-made purpose. Something that comes from inside, from within, not from the outside. And it's no surprise that this goes hand in hand with the wisdom that comes from our life experiences. And we're ready for it. And that's when we think about self-made purpose. And self-made purpose simply comes from activities like creativity and learning or teaching. I just gave the example of Marshall. Him teaching others gives him an incredible sense of meaning, right? Standing up for what you believe. These these are all things that are the um, doors to self-made purpose. There were so many things that jumped out to me and stood out to me in reading both your books. One of them was I noticed that you also encouraged people to know what to avoid going forward. Could you give a few examples of what people have called out to avoid? It's really important to know what to avoid because if we are intentional about those things, we can make time and space for things we love. And that's why I want to remind people. It's not just only about things you want to include. It's also about things you want to get rid of. And so the things that people talk about, three that came to my mind. One is they say yes to too many things. So they want to learn to say no. And what's good about that is if you can say no to things, you're making time for other things, for new things, maybe things that are important to you. So one is avoid saying yes to everything. And the other thing that came from our research was toxic friends, especially older people were very clear about saying no to toxic friends and saying, I don't have time for this. So I thought that that was really interesting. And then the third one is living life, not being true to yourself. And this comes from some research that was done with people who were dying about their wishes, you know, wish things that they wish they had done. And Joe, the number one thing is I wish I had lived a life true to myself and listened less to other people or what other people expect of me. So that that also comes up in our research. And frankly, designing your life or designing your long life is all about being true to yourself. In fact, I'm doing a retreat about design the honest life you love with my friend Ron Carucci, which is you know, really about this. One of the biggest things that's happened in our life recently is becoming grandparents for the first time. And we're grandparenting from a distance. Therefore, I reached out to Carrie Byrne to get her perspective on what it takes to be a long-distance grandparent. And keep in mind, you may not be one today, you may not be a grandparent, or you may be a grandparent whose grandchildren are close by, but things do change, and someday you might be grandparenting from a distance. So listen in. Well, I think people are surprised by a couple of things. One is really the sheer number of grandparents that we have. So The Economist just published a, a great article called The Age of the Grandparent Has Arrived. And they had some fancy demographers look at how many grandparents we have. And worldwide, there are 1.5 billion grandparents. 
I think the other stat that is very surprising to people is the age at which someone usually becomes a grandparent. Because that's 50 for women, a touch older for men, but not much more. And the third one I would say is that around by the time someone is like by the time American, so we'll go to America now. So there are over 70 million grandparents in America alone. And by the time someone you know hits 75, almost 90% of people are a grandparent. So this is a a huge burgeoning group with quite a long period of time to contribute and be intentional in their grandparenting. And what percentage do you think are long distance grandparents? Well, the data that we have on that's really from from AARP actually. So they did a grandparenthood study in 2019 and they reported that over 50% of American grandparents are doing this from a distance. And they had, if you're 200 miles or more away from your grandchild as the kind of indicator of that. So in that, that I think bears out when I talk to other people, it potentially could be higher, but that's the best number that we have is over 50% are doing this from a distance. We're in that category. We're at 256 miles, but who's counting? (laughs) (laughs) But it's a, it's a good stat because if you're not a long distance grandparent today, you might be in the future. Well, and this is actually when grandparents often reach out to me is either when they become a long distance grandparent. So when they're in that phase that you're in within the first couple of years and they realize it's going to take a lot more time and effort and or when they become long distance. So their grandchildren have been local and then have made a, are making a move based on someone's job or for whatever reason, or that the grandparent is moving and making a transition in their life. So those are that's really a key time that I hear from people in the long distance grandparenting world. Thanks for listening to this special best of episode of 2023 part one. I hope it highlighted for you an episode or two that you did get a chance to listen to or and or an episode that you'd like to revisit because it may resonate with you now more than when it was first published earlier this year. You can find all of our episodes at our website, retirementwisdom.com. You can browse different guests and topics across six seasons. It's a free retirement school. And I hope you'll find it to be a useful resource. Thanks for listening.